MSW Media. News was Hello and welcome to The Daily Beans for Tuesday, September 1st, 2020. Today, the Second Circuit is about to hear round two of Trump's bullshit argument against the Mazar subpoena. Trump apparently tried to give John Kelly the FBI director job after he fired Comey, but Kelly declined. A leaked McGahn memo raises more concerns about Kushner's security clearance. Trump is trying to force the FDA to approve a vaccine before phase three trials are complete. A new Trump pandemic advisor is pushing herd immunity to the White House. The mayor of Kenosha and the governor of Wisconsin have asked Trump not to visit. Steve Scalise does the unthinkable. The gun-wielding St. Louis couple, the McCloskeys, made their first court appearance today. The D.C. Circuit Court has denied Flynn's mandamus on Bonk. Bannon and his other three partners in crime plead not guilty to the We Build the Wall fraud scheme. And a three-judge panel has decided the House subpoena of McGahn is unenforceable. I'm your host, A.G. Greetings and happy Tuesday. Uh, I will be going over today the big court news. There's a lot of it today. And later on in the show, I'm going to be joined by infectious disease expert Dr. Dina Grayson for an update on coronavirus and a potentially deadly set of circumstances in Trump's vaccine proposal. Uh, we will have the good news block for you as well at the end of the show. You can send your good news stories into us and your corrections and your quarantine confessions all to thedailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact and the rest is pretty self-explanatory. I also want to thank our patrons. We have had hundreds, hundreds of patrons buy premium subscriptions, year-long premium subscriptions for those who can't afford it right now and frontline workers. And if you want to sign up on the wait list to be the recipient of one of these premium subscriptions, just head to dailybeanspod.com, scroll down on the bottom of the front page, and you'll see there. That's also if you want where you can buy a one-year subscription for 36 bucks for somebody who is in need right now. And if you are a premium subscriber, your patron, you get ad-free episodes. You get them early. You're going to get the Mary Trump Book Club, which starts this week with comedian and friend of mine, Dana Goldberg. She's going to be doing that book club with me, and I'm super excited about it. And those episodes will come out. You're going to get uh, our newsletter with my personal research notes. Every single article that I use uh, in the news is cited in there, and it's all obsessively researched. And we have fun, you know, pictures and all sorts of things from from the week, from the previous week in that newsletter. Uh, and then, you know, when once, once this whole uh, Trump administration is shoved out of office and, you know, COVID uh, comes to an end, we'll probably go on tour again. And then, you know, you'll get to have VIP meet and greet access. And you can come to our happy hour on Fridays online streaming early, an hour early for patrons, all sorts of benefits. So check it out, dailybeanspod.com. And thank you, thank you, thank you so much to our patrons. You guys are so amazing. I can't believe hundreds, hundreds of people have been donating these premium subscriptions. So thank you. Uh, we do have a lot of news to get to today, though. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. Okay, so I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. So let's start with the bad news, as is customary. A D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals panel ruled two to one to dismiss the House Democrats' lawsuit seeking to enforce a subpoena for Don McGahn to testify. This is for testimony for way back in the obstruction of justice shit from the Mueller investigation, by the way. Um, now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, but A.G., didn't an en banc court just rule three weeks ago that McGahn had to testify? Well, kind of. The en banc panel actually ruled that the House had jurisdiction to seek judicial enforcement of the subpoena, but it sent the remaining issues, it remanded it back down to the three-judge panel, to decide if the House had a cause of action. So this is bullshit, and I'm hoping it's reheard en banc. Zoe Tillman has said uh, that something, and there's something to note here, that there is still no ruling on whether presidential advisors like McGahn have some kind of absolute immunity, which is the quote-unquote merits of the case. The absolute immunity argument wasn't decided today by a three-judge panel because they said they found the House Dems had no cause of action and therefore they didn't have to consider the immunity question. Uh, they ruled today that absent legislation explicitly authorizing the House to go to court to enforce a subpoena, there is no cause of action. They need to use their inherent contempt powers. Uh, the dissent says... 
No law is needed here because the Constitution implies Congress has the right to compel a subpoena, not to mention, she says, there is a law that gives the House cause of action. It's called the Declaratory Judgment Act. And here's what I think about this. I mean, if Griffith and um, I can't remember the name of the other judge, uh, it wasn't Henderson, have, have decided, maybe it was Henderson, have decided that uh, you have to have a law on the books and you need to pass a law to be able to enforce a subpoena by Congress, which is so dumb, uh, then and, 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 and encourage and said, hey, you can use your contempt, um, inherent contempt powers. Well, then I say, fucking arrest him. Fine him. Jail him and fine him until he testifies. Use your inherent contempt powers. Griffith just gave you permission. The judge who forgot that the Constitution said that Congress has this power. But whatever. Neither here nor there. If Griffith, if the judge, if the courts are saying, hey, use your inherent contempt power, let's do it. That's what I say. Now for the good news. We got the en banc decision in the Flynn mandamus case, and it's not good news for traders or QAnon or Flynn. So let's go over the case as a refresher. As we know, in December of 2017, Flynn pleaded guilty guilty to making false statements to the FBI in violation of 18 U.S. Code 1001. And in May of 2020, uh, the Department of Justice moved to dismiss the charges with prejudice under the federal rule of criminal procedure, Rule 48A. Flynn moved to withdraw his pending motions, including his motion to withdraw his guilty plea, and consented to the geo, the Department of Justice's motion to dismiss. So he had put in a, a motion, you know, uh, to withdraw his guilty plea, and he had a couple of other pending motions. But when the Department of Justice, when fucking Bill Barr stepped in and said, we want to drop these cases too, the prosecutors, not the prosecutors of the case, they all resigned, they all left, or, you know, left the government or left that case. Uh, but when, when they came in, when Barr came in and said, hey, yeah, no, the DOJ's cool with dropping charges, that's that's when um, Flynn withdrew his motions and said, cool, I'm with the Department of Justice. So now we have the defendant and the plaintiff on the same side. Cool, cool, cool. A week earlier, um, uh, then, you know, from a week before the DOJ filed its motion to dismiss, on May 13th, Sullivan appointed an amicus curiae to present arguments in opposition to the Department of Justice because now there's nobody on the side of the prosecution. So he wanted to do that, and he wanted to address whether the court should issue an order to show cause why Flynn shouldn't be held in criminal contempt for perjury. Six days later, the Flynn team filed an emergency petition for writ of mandamus, asking for the court to grant the DOJ's motion to dismiss, forcing Sullivan to dismiss the case, to vacate the appointment of the amicus curiae, in this case, retired Judge Gleason, you'll remember his uh, curiae briefing, and uh, to reassign the case to a different judge. And a three-judge panel in the circuit court heard the arguments, and while it refused to reassign the case, they did decide two to one to grant the writ to dismiss the case and declared the amicus curiae appointment moot. Sullivan then filed a petition for a rehearing on Bonk, which was granted. The three-judge panel decision was vacated. Uh, and they heard the on Bonk uh, court, the full, full bench of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, heard arguments and came back with their decision today. And that decision is Kick Rocks General Flynn. I'm paraphrasing, by the way. The en banc panel of judges on the D.C. District Court of Appeals ruled, as predicted, that Flynn and his crackpot conspiracy theorist attorney Sidney Powell did not establish that he has no other adequate means to attain the relief he desires, which is one of the requirements of Rule 48A. You've heard me and Andrew Torres from opening arguments talk about this ad nauseum. The en banc panel also declined to reassign the case to another judge, saying Flynn and Powell failed to establish a clear and indisputable right to reassignment. Then they cite Will v. United States and Roche v. Evaporated Milk Association, quote, Mandamus may not appropriately be used merely as a substitute for the appeal procedure prescribed by the statute. The writ is a potent weapon, a drastic and extraordinary remedy reserved for really extraordinary causes, unquote. And since the ordinary appellate process is still available to Flynn because Sullivan hasn't made a decision yet, a mandamus can only be issued if Flynn identifies some irreparable harm that would go unaddressed without mandamus relief. And the court found here that Flynn failed to show he would suffer irreparable injury. They also concluded the government would suffer no irreparable injury. And they go on to say, quote, quite simply, the only separation of powers question we must answer at this juncture is whether the appointment of an amicus and the scheduling of briefing and argument is a clearly indisputably impermissible intrusion upon executive authority, because that is all the district judge has ordered at this point. 
We have no trouble answering that question in the negative, or because precedent and experience have recognized the authority of courts to appoint an amicus to assist in their decision-making similar, in similar circumstances, including in criminal cases, and even when the movement is the government. So basically, the appointment of Gleason as amicus curiae is totes cool. Now, this part is hilarious. This is my favorite part of the ruling. The court addresses Flynn's reasons to be assigned another judge. And here's what they say about that. They say petitioner, that's Flynn, also argues that several of the district judge's statements evidence the district judge's outrage and deep-seated antagonism warranting reassignment. Examples of what Sullivan, uh, what Sullivan said that Flynn contends warrant a new judge include, quote, arguably you sold your country out. The court's going to consider all of that. You could be incarcerated. Quote, it could be that any sentence of incarceration imposed after your further cooperation would be for less time than any sentence may be today. I can't make any guarantees, but I'm not hiding my disgust and my disdain for this criminal offense. Quote, hypothetically, could he have been charged with treason? <laughs> Quote, I was just trying to determine the benefit of the generosity of the government in bestowing uh, a benefit for, on Mr. Flynn. I'm not suggesting he committed treason. Um, we agree, then the court goes on to say, we agree with the panel majority that none of these statements to which the petitioner points establishes that reassignment is warranted. Then they cite case law, quote, opinions formed by the judge on the basis of facts introduced or events occurring in the course of proceedings do not constitute a basis for bias or partiality motion for a bias or partiality motion unless they display deep-seated favoritism or antagonism that would make fair judgment impossible. So the on banc panel in D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals is saying, all that shit Sullivan said is based on facts and, and uh, you know, events occurring in the course of proceedings. <laughs> That's, I love that. For a quote, for the foregoing reasons, the petition for writ of mandamus is denied and the underlying criminal case resumes in the district court. We trust and expect the district court to proceed with appropriate dispatch. This decision, by the way, the en banc panel was eight to two. The two judges dissenting were the two in the two to one panel, obviously, that had decided for this. So. What happens next? Flynn will likely appeal to the Supreme Court, which is not likely to go anywhere because Griffith, Judge Griffith, one of the two, on his last day on the bench, chose to file a separate concurrence in the en banc denial of mandamus. And according to our friend Steve Vladek, that's a very powerful sign of how any appeal to SCOTUS would probably be denied because the two key justices, Roberts and Kavanaugh, were both colleagues with Griffith on the circuit court and their sensibilities tend to be the same as his. We had beans on mandamus being overturned on banc. So we were right there. And now I have beans that this will be denied by SCOTUS as well. This leaves Trump with the decision of whether or not to pardon Flynn, which would be hilarious because it would open him up to Sullivan doing what Amy Berman, Judge Jackson, if you're nasty, did in the Roger Stone case by opening the door to challenge his unlawful commutation because everything could come out. And the bizarre thing here is that if Flynn had just been sentenced kept his Covington Burling lawyers, Covington Burling lawyers, Burlington Covington, whatever, kept those guys, kept his plea agreement, pleaded guilty, cooperated in the Bijan Keon case. He would have been sentenced to zero to six months. He'd be out by now. No one ever accused treasonous traitors of being smart, I guess. Also, Today, uh, Tuesday, we will hear arguments in Trump's second second round of bullshit arguments in the Mazar subpoena case, though we have learned that the Manhattan DA probably already has Trump's tax returns. We'll talk about that in News from Under the Radar right after uh, this quick break. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, thanks so much for supporting the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by the good folks at Caliper CBD. We know it's important to practice self-care. But, you know, who said taking care of yourself has to be hard? It shouldn't be. It should be easy because then you'll get stressed about taking care of yourself. And then if your self-care is stressing you out, it sort of defeats the point. The great thing about CBD is that it helps you feel better without having to make big changes to your life or your routine. Uh, personally, CBD has helped me feel more calm. It helps me sleep easier and feel less sore after workouts. Uh, I'm not crazy about measuring out eyedroppers full of tinctures. That's why I'm excited that Caliper has introduced a better way to consume CBD. It's a powder. And unlike oils, Caliper CBD powder is completely tasteless. It mixes easily in food or drink with precisely 20 milligrams in each packet um, of Caliper or CBD. So you never question how much CBD you're taking. 
I often put it in my morning coffee or a post-workout protein shake. Uh, it's clinically proven also that you absorb 450% more CBD with Caliper CBD powders compared to tinctures. That is a massive difference. And Caliper gives you all the benefits of CBD in just 15 minutes. It's fast acting. That's twice as fast as CBD oil. And Caliper is completely THC free, so you get all the benefits of CBD without any intoxicating or mind-altering effects. Caliper is made with all natural non-GMO ingredients, no fillers, no added chemicals or artificial flavors. So take care of yourself, but also make it easy on yourself with Caliper CBD and get 20% off your first order when you use promo code DAILYBEANS at trycaliper.com slash dailybeans. You can try Caliper CBD risk-free for 30 days, and if you don't love it, they'll give you a full refund. So trycaliper.com slash dailybeans, and don't forget promo code DAILYBEANS for 20% off your first order. All right, everybody, welcome back. I've got some headlines from under the radar for you. First of all, the governor of Wisconsin and the mayor of Kenosha are asking Trump to cancel his visit tomorrow amidst unrest after the murder of Jacob Blake. But Trump is insisting on going. Um, the lawmakers and, and the, the mayor and the governor say it's too soon. and The community is still process, in the process of healing. And Trump's visit would usurp resources needed to manage the, the peaceful protests. The White House has still to condemn the actions of Kyle Rittenhouse. In fact, today in a news conference, he, Trump was like, oh, I hear he fell down. He was attacked uh, like he it's absolutely insane. And Trump even went as far as liking a tweet that said he supported uh, that they supported uh, Rittenhouse. And he's one of the reasons he voted for Trump. Um, Trump is scheduled to visit Kenosha Tuesday, but has no plans to meet with the family of Jacob Blake. And in Portland, as we know, protests have been going on since the murder of George, George Floyd. And this weekend, far-right white supremacists clashed with peaceful protesters. Somebody was shot. Mayor Wheeler said, quote, for four years, we've had to live with you. He's talking about Trump. Trump, we've had to live with you and your racist attacks on black people. We learned early about your sexist attitude towards women. We've had to endure clips of you mocking a disabled man. Do you seriously wonder why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It is you who has created the hate and division. So that's what's happening in uh, in Portland. Uh, in other news, uh, politics here, Trump apparently tried to give John Kelly the FBI director job after Trump fired Comey. But Kelly declined. Uh, Trump had offered then Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly the position of FBI director one day after he fired Comey. One day after he fired Comey in 2017. That's like, you know, when you, you, you know you're going to break up with somebody, but you don't do it for a couple of months. And, and so then, you you know, or then that person breaks up with you and then all of a sudden they're dating somebody the next day. It's like, you've been thinking about this. Um, the thing is, though, Trump demanded Kelly be loyal. This is according to an Axios, Axios report citing New York Times reporter Michael Schmidt's forthcoming book. There's a lot of stories in this book uh, that should have come out when they were scooped. I'm a little upset that they were saved for a book. Um, Schmidt is also reporting directly from a confidential McGahn memo that apparently Axios got a hold of for the first time, describing how John Kelly had serious concerns about granting Kushner a top-secret clearance in response to a briefing he had received related to the routine FBI investigation into Kushner's background. Quote, the information you were briefed on a week ago and subsequently relayed to me raises serious additional concerns about whether this individual ought to retain a top security clearance until such issues can be investigated and resolved. That's a memo from McGahn to Kelly. And the details of the highly sensitive intelligence that raised alarms with Kelly are not revealed in the McGahn memo or in Schmidt's book. McGahn wrote that he had been unable to receive the briefing or access the highly compartmented information directly about Kushner. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if McGahn could testify? <laughs> Quote, interim, secrets is the interim secret is the highest clearance that I can concur until further information is received. That's McGahn. That's what McGahn concluded in the memo, referring to the level of classified information Kushner would be able to access. That's um, frightening. Now, we knew about all this, right? We knew that his his shit came back questionable. And, you know... Even if it's just because you owe billions of dollars to the Qatari government or you owe millions to a, another foreign government, that right there alone compromises you. So it, it's very scratchy surface basic stuff, but there could be a whole iceberg of shit that we don't even know about, especially with MBS. He's buddies with him. Who knows? Um, and, you know, of course, the Trump Organization's longstanding relationship monetarily with Russia that would have been great if um, Mueller was allowed to investigate. 
And also, I'm I'm getting tired of of people withholding stories to write a book. Um, especially when so much is at stake. I'll just leave it at that. Another piece of shit, Steve Scalise has done the unthinkable. Twitter has labeled a video promoted by House Minority Whip Steve Scalise of a progressive activist interviewing Joe Biden about police funding, and it's been it's been labeled manipulated content. And uh, Scalise later deleted the tweet Sunday night. The video splices together footage from an interview between Addie Barkin, who has ALS and speaks using a computerized artificial voice, and Joe Biden. In the original video... Barkin asked Biden if he can agree that we can redirect some of the funding for police departments towards mental health services, to which Biden replies yes. The clip tweeted out by the number two Republican in the House splices the words for police from one of Barkin's other questions to make it sound as if Barkin is asking Biden if he agrees they can redirect some of the funding for police. That's disgusting. And a January 2020 memo to all House members from Ethics Committee and the Ethics Committee may mean that Rep. Steve Scalise is in trouble for making the deep fake video that he posted online this week. I don't know if he made it, but he posted it. Deep fakes are against the ethics rules in Congress, and posting it will likely mean an ethics investigation. So beans on any day now, maybe today, there being an ethics investigation opened into Scalise. I welcome it. And uh, the gun-wielding St. Louis couple that appeared at the RNC, the McCloskeys, were set to make their first court appearance today, but it's been postponed to October 9th for coronavirus considerations. And former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon's three co-defendants indicted on uh, in a conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering in connection to a crowdfunding campaign to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border called We Build the Wall, each pleaded not guilty today. Not sure how they're going to swing that. Air Force veteran Brian Colfodge, 38. Andrew Badalato, I believe is how you pronounce his name. He's 56. And Timothy Shea, not the Timothy Shea you're thinking, a real estate guy from Colorado, 49, age, entered their pleas in U.S. federal court in New York during a hearing conducted via teleconference because of COVID-19. The three men, along with the 66-year-old Bannon, and if he's 66, I mean, you know, according to Barr, that means he shouldn't get, you know, he shouldn't get jail time. They should lower his sentence, right? Like they did with Roger Stone. That was his reason, I think. But these three men, along with Bannon, were charged with defrauding donors, including kids. Kids who went out and fundraised. And this $25 million crowdfunding We Built the Wall campaign. They basically made false representations to false representations to to contributors. They used the money for themselves, for plastic surgery and yachts. And real estate, mortgage payments, luxury items. Saying that that all the money would go to the wall and we wouldn't take salaries. Well, they did. Millions. Bannon pleaded not guilty earlier this month to allegedly using hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations made to this campaign for personal expenses. So they're pleading not guilty. And this is an open and shut case, so I'm interested to see what their defense is. I was dead at the time. And this is just in right now. This is some late breaking news. Trump on Monday urged a federal appeals court not to let Manhattan's top prosecutor have his tax returns. This is a final filing. And this is this is Monday night uh, before the hearing on Tuesday. And he's saying the, the, the handover would cause him irreparable harm. And he would ask the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene if needed. So what is in your taxes that your defense for turning them over is actually that handing them over would cause you irreparable harm. They're going to a grand jury, so they're not being released to the public. The only kind of irreparable harm you can get from a grand jury is an indictment. So I'm really interested to hear these arguments. <laughs> we know that Vance postponed... he. The uh, Trump had asked for an emergency stay, but Vance said, I don't need to stay. I won't get the stuff. I will hold off until... The Second Circuit hears the case. Of course, The Hill put out an article saying Vance shelves the Manhattan, you know, the, the Mazar subpoena. He didn't. He just he said no need to go for a stay. It's eight days away, which is September 1st, which is Tuesday. Then then we'll, we'll go from there. 
So, you know, everyone freaked out over an eight-day delay. He didn't shelve it. Um, and that's what's going on there. Of course, of course, Trump will ask the Supreme Court if needed. The argument was made in a filing, This Trump's argument, that it would cause him uh, irreparable harm, in a filing with the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals in Manhattan, which on Tuesday will hear oral arguments, as I said, on Trump's bid to delay Cyrus Vance's subpoena. And if the appeals court were to reject the delay, uh, Trump requested a stay to allow for time for the Supreme Court to consider his request. So in this filing, uh, not only is he saying um, this is, will cause me irreparable harm if, these, if, if this subpoena is fulfilled or complied with, but he also asked, if I lose, <laughs> I would like a stay while I file with the Supreme Court. So we're going to find out a couple of things. First of all, we're going to find out if Trump loses, which my beans are that he will. And I, I'm rarely 100% about things, but I'm 100% he's going to lose this one. But the stay, I don't know. Maybe they'll grant him a stay, a temporary stay, but a very short one so that he can appeal to the Supreme Court. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to hear this case either. And the district attorney is seeking eight years of tax returns. Uh, from Mazars in connection with the criminal probe of Trump's businesses, including the Trump Organization. He's been fighting the subpoena for a year. Of course, he suffered defeat in July when the Supreme Court rejected his first bullshit claim of immunity from criminal probes while in the White House. Uh, there is a law that indicates Vance may already have state tax returns on Trump in New York. But he needs these financials from Mazars because it appears he's looking for a key piece of evidence. I don't know what it is. I imagine that if there are indictments to be had, they'll come pretty swiftly once Mazars hands the documents over to the grand jury, because my guess is most of the investigation is complete. They've had Deutsche Bank shit and Trump's state tax returns for a year. I, be I, I'm, I believe the indictments are drafted and ready to go. He just needs these documents. The grand jury just needs these documents for evidence to, to indict. And with this hearing Tuesday, I imagine the appellate court will rule in favor of Vance, like I said, and SCOTUS will refuse to hear the case. Those are my beans. We'll keep you posted. Um, we have a lot of pretty shocking coronavirus news as we surpass 6 million cases in the United States with over 183,000 deaths. And we have infectious disease expert uh, Dr. Dina Grayson, who's going to join us right after this quick break. You don't want to miss it. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. It's AG, and this portion of Daily Beans is brought to you by the incredible people at BetterHelp. Life is really, really stressful right now. I have a lot of anxiety. I know a lot of us do, too. And if you're struggling with anything keeping you from enjoying a full, happy life, I recommend BetterHelp. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. It is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is licensed professional counseling done securely online. They'll assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. I've had my own challenges dealing with PTSD, and I truly believe that when it comes to our mental health, it's imperative to seek help rather than try to face it alone. BetterHelp services are available for clients worldwide with a broad range of expertise in their counselor network, which may not be available in your areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change your counselor if needed. The more affordable, it's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So visit their website and read their testimonials like this one by BetterHelp user JU, who says, uh, Dr. Kircher helped me so much in a short amount of time. Between COVID, having a new baby, and the stresses of life, her straightforward and intuitive style was so helpful and wonderful, I would recommend her to anyone. So visit BetterHelp.com slash Daily Beans, and uh, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Special offer for Daily Beans listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dailybeans. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, joining us today for an update on the coronavirus news is infectious disease expert, MD and PhD, Dr. Dina Grayson. Dr. Dina, thanks so much for joining me today. Hey, AG. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I, you know, I've been following you uh, and following your updates uh, for a really long time. So I really appreciate you uh, answering some of my questions today. Well, hey, I, you know, I love your podcast. And so I'm psyched now to be a guest. This is awesome. Hopefully it's the start of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> I think so. Yes, this could be the start of a beautiful friendship. Uh, now, uh, let's beautiful friendship aside, there is some bizarre stuff going on um, over the last couple of days and, and today included. And I have a few absolutely bizarre and terrifying news stories that I wanted to discuss with you, starting with the news that the FDA 
could consider authorization for a COVID-19 vaccine before the phase three trials are complete. Can you give us a brief overview of what the phase three trials uh, entail and why they are so important and why this is an absolutely horrifying proposition? Well, AG, look, this is, um, uh, it's absolutely reckless and dangerous. Okay. Bottom line. And Trump is, is following in the steps of China and is, close pal Vlad Putin by pushing unproven, untested, relatively untested potential vaccines. So when you develop medicines or a vaccine, the first step with a vaccine is you do the what's called the phase one testing. And that essentially is going to confirm the right dose of the vaccine and that it's safe and, and well tolerated. And you'll, you know, the researchers will also test for signs of potential immunity, things like the um, existence of antibodies, um, of what we call T cells, which are cells that can go and kill virally infected cells. So they'll do these, you know, very detailed tests on, you know, say a couple dozen patients or healthy people. These are healthy volunteers. Then from there, you have the dose. That's what we have right now in hand, by the way, when people have seen results or heard about results from companies like Moderna and others with their coronavirus vaccines, that's actually the data from these initial first-time-in-human phase one studies. So that while the data can be very encouraging, there the, the, the problem is, is that you, we're talking about a vaccine. People are otherwise healthy. Granted, COVID-19 is, is not, you don't want to get it. Um, but you have to think about the relative benefit risk because there can be potential risks with any vaccine or potential uh, drug therapy. So what's really important, AG, as well as to confirm efficacy. It's one thing to say, well, we can measure like there's some antibodies, but do we really know if those will prevent you from getting infected, from getting sick, from being hospitalized or even dying? Okay. So what needs to be done to confirm all of that are these phase three studies that are called field trials. So essentially you go in and you inoculate people with a placebo, kind of a dummy vaccine that has you know, nothing in it, versus the actual vaccine and, or vaccine candidate. And this is done in you know 10,000 healthy people. And then you kind of have to wait and see, do these people get infected? So here in the US, unfortunately, we have a lot of inf infections. However, that makes, you know we have the ability to test a vaccine. And you basically compare between that placebo and the vaccine candidate is, does it work? Does it, you know, how many people got infected? How many people got sick, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and any kind of potential safety um, flags that might arise. And thus far, the vaccines appear to be safe, well tolerated. We don't know if they work and we don't really know if they're safe. I mean, that's only data from like 30 people per vaccine. So it's reckless when you say we're going to expedite things and we're just going to push through unproven vaccines. Um, it is you know, I think you're going to see people quit at the FDA. I really do. Um, the FDA's mission, their core mission, own stated mission is to protect and preserve public health, period, via safety of, you know, vaccines, et cetera. So this is part of their core mission. It's actually the first part of their core mission statement. Um, so, you know, this is very reckless. And, you know, unlike what what the, the original plan was, AG, which is, hey, let's make a bunch of vaccine. Uh, doses at risk in parallel to the phase three uh, field test that we just talked about. That's a good thing to do, right? That all there you're mm -hmm. risking is money because you're investing. And I pushed for this and asked for this back in early February, AG. Mm -hmm. I went on Trump's, one of his favorite channels, Fox News. And I said, look, this is what mm -hmm. needs to get done. Because I'm like, I hope these people will hear. Like, this is what, you know, I've developed medicines. This is what you do. You want to take risk. Let's take financial risk, right? Let's go ahead and, you know, manufacture hundreds of millions of doses. And that's what we've been doing in parallel to the phase three field study. So that way, once you have the results of those phase three studies, you say, yep, it works. And it protects people not only in a test tube, but also from getting sick out in the real world, um, you know, from getting infected, getting sick, et cetera. Then you have that information coupled with safety information in 10,000 people. Then you can, then you now, boom, we've got the vaccine. Um, doses already made and manufactured. That's what mm. that's what should be done. That was the original plan. Uh, the original, you know, the timelines that I've seen are off by like Moderna, you know, by four or five months. But those are really critical four or five months. Where as much as I don't want to have 
infections and, and illnesses and deaths and no one does, we actually could have a way to deal with that in the interim while we wait for the phase three data. And that is wearing a mask, having mm-hmm. federal guidelines about how to address <laughs> uh, rigorous testing, not, oh, we don't want to test, which I know we're going to get into. So, you know, there is a way to do this that preserves public health. We obviously want to be as open as possible as you know, we, you know, we can as a, as a community and as a nation, but we have to do so carefully and right, you know, and, and so I think if we do that, that would be the best way to go. So if we don't, um, I will tell you something. I don't, I think that there will be a, maybe a political victory, maybe for Trump, if this doesn't blow up in his face, because there could be major safety issues. And the reality is I don't think people will go out and get vaccinated because I think that no. they'll they'll understand. And, and here's the other thing. The other thing is it also takes away from your ability to get those phase three studies done because then some people who might be willing to volunteer say, well, I might get placebo, 50-50 shot or whatever that shot is. I can just go and get the vaccine, you know. Mm. So that's the right. other problem, right? Yeah, and, and this to me also, you know, kind of skipping phase three or, or you know, plowing through it because, you know, I mean, the, uh, one of the key things here in phase three is the, the large sample size and a diverse sample size. And we know that's right that this virus disproportionately impacts Latinx communities and, and communities of color, black people. And if you don't have uh, a diverse group, I, to me, this feels like it just perpetuates the systemic racism in in that exists sort of in the medical community or, or has impacted and, and maybe the cause of why um, things like this impact people of color so disproportionately. It, it feels like if you leave that out, um, there could be dire consequences. Not that not that we would know what they were uh, because we didn't do the proper efficacy and safety tests of phase three on a large population of diverse people. Well, I, I think that it, you know, you definitely want information about diverse populations, not only race um, and ethnicity, but also gender and age. So, right. I mean, we know that older people and actually men more than women are the most susceptible to this virus. You want to know, do people, do older people that have cardiovascular issues, do they actually get immunity? That's another real challenge, okay? Our most vulnerable people and members of our community are actually the least likely to actually um, mount an immune response in in response to the vaccine. So basically the vaccine may not work as well. Now, it's still a good thing if our our 20 to 40 year olds are getting vaccinated because actually they're the ones spreading the vaccine everywhere or spreading the virus everywhere. Pardon me. So, right. That's what happens. So the outbreak just runs like wildfire, like here in Orlando, of course, our kids high school, they're doing, you know, not they're going, they're going virtually, but of course today, Oh, whoops, we have a coronavirus case, you know, surprise, surprise. Right. Of course. Well, yeah. And not only that, but like, I mean, there have been studies out of uh, China that show that younger people don't, hold the immunity as long or get as many antibodies. That's the kind of stuff that you have to find out through phase three. And that's why it's so dangerous to, to just kind of blow through it. Um, so uh, I, I appreciate you breaking that down for us because I think it's really important that people kind of understand um, where we stand on that and and why politicizing a vaccine is a bad idea. Uh, just like politicizing mask wearing or anything else is a terrible idea. You know, politicizing science. Like, right, and facts, and basic Mm -hmm. facts. We can debate policy from here to the moon, right? That's what politics is supposed to be about. Of We uh, we agree that there's a problem here. You know, we've got 183-plus thousand dead Americans. I think all Americans, you know, we're losing over a thousand a day for how long? Uh, I think all Americans could come together and go, you know, this is not okay. (laughs) This is bad. This is really bad. And, And frankly kind of the sanity check here, and this is when I sort of like, how bad has it really gotten in our country, AG, is I look at polls, like how many people think that Trump mishandled the pandemic? And it's it's overwhelmingly bad for him. And that means Republicans are like, hmm, this is bad. Because why? They tend to be older, right? More susceptible. And they're afraid. They don't want to get infected and die. And that's, you know, fear is the Republicans know how to weaponize fear. This is one of their secret little dirty tricks, right? Oh, that was the entire RNC was just fear. 
of course. Well, they weaponize fear. And so, but the problem here is that it's backfiring in their case against them because now people are afraid of something that Trump keeps trying to blow off. You can't do that to people. It doesn't work. So, you know, hopefully there's some sanity check here and, you know, Trump finally pays due for at least some of his absolute, you know, uh, at best dereliction of duty. Yeah, well, I don't know, because the next story from The Washington Post today says that Scott Atlas, who is one of President Trump's top medical advisors, is urging the White House to embrace herd immunity uh, as a strategy to combat the pandemic, which would entail allowing the coronavirus to spread through the population like a wave wash over us to quickly build resistance to the virus. And I remember IHME when they put their models out saying if we did nothing we could see 2.2 million to 4 million deaths in America, not cases, but deaths. deaths. And, and, and I, I'm wondering, WTF, Dr. Dina? <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think that um, this is the White House spin effort, okay? Just as we were talking about, AG, you know, Trump can't, um, he can't get people to ignore the, dead, the body count, okay? They just, you, you, he can't overcome that. So now it's spin. It's been, oh, we always, this was always our plan. And, you know, the, the, the billionaires and millionaires who are, you know, ensconced in their palatial palaces, maybe they can afford to sort of be sequestered and not get the virus. But for the most, most of Americans, like we have to kind of leave our house and like to do our daily lives. The ones that still have jobs, right? Right. I mean, you can stay in your house and get things delivered. That's possible. But still, we've got a lot of really good, hardworking Americans that they have no choice. They have to show up to work. Healthcare workers, school workers, people delivery, you know, restaurants, et cetera. We've got people that actually are risking their lives to basically be part of this community. So some of us can stay home. Right. Well, so yeah. so this idea of herd immunity is bollocks. And, you know, but we know we know look, this is old news. We knew that this was Trump's strategy. And then he got called on it. And it was actually what ended up happening is is that his good buddy Boris Johnson actually got the virus and was admitted to ICU was very, very ill with a virus and reportedly is potentially still having lingering effects. I mean, no surprise. This is a nasty virus. And suddenly it was like, oh, no, no, no. Okay, yeah, maybe not herd, herd immunity strategy. But yet in reality, if we look at what Trump has done or rather not done, cer certainly appears that way, right? No national testing strategy, none. In fact, hey, states, you're on your own. I mean, you know, Governor Cuomo said this well. He said, you know, I'm not an expert in pandemic viruses. I like never expected to be because usually the federal government handles these things, <laughs> but they're not doing it. And so, okay, here we go. And you've got the you know governor of Maryland. He's a Republican man. And that he's like his wife, who's um, of South Korean background. She actually negotiated with South Korea to buy a bunch yeah. of tests. I'm like, yep. Hey, that's innovative. I love yeah. you have state after state after state. And you know, the, the thing that Trump has, he's like, a you know, he's adopting this. I'm going to stick my head in the sand. But I said this back, you know, in early March. And I, again, I went on one of Trump's favorite right wing networks. And I said, look, you know, what's he's, he, he can't spin death. That's the problem. You can't. He can't. And so this is just part of his. Hey, we always had a plan. It's, and, and so and that's even worse. Here's the thing. I think. The, bad, the thing that Trump doesn't get in this case is that go ahead and keep pushing that, man, because now it's not just, well, we really tried and we failed. But no, our plan was, yeah, let it rip. Let people die. That is, I mean, he is admitting I mm -hmm. threw two, you know, potentially two million American lives under the bus because I thought that maybe my poll numbers might benefit and maybe the economy might do slightly better. But that's mm -hmm. just, it's just a fallacy of illogic, illogic. It's not even logic in this guy, right? I mean, no. you know, you can't just say to people, hey, the economy's reopened, go out. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, a lot of people, like here in Florida, I, I'm telling you, like, I live in Florida and people, many people wear masks, older, uh, you know, older Americans here, older folks here, I should say, they're out in the stores. They've been wearing masks. It's been very interesting. And I, in communities that are really re very strongly Republican, I you know, I go around with a mask, look around. What, what are people doing? They're wearing masks, which is very interesting. And because, again, self-preservation, that, you know, fear of dying, that overcomes Trump's spin doctoring. So, 
you know, hopefully, hopefully, uh, people will continue to see through this. And I, you know, I think, um, hopefully, you know, Vice President Biden gave a fantastic speech today and, and hammer Trump for, for the, you know, all these lies of like, oh, we've got all this, you know, division in his country because of a, of a p- potential Biden presidency. It's like, what? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know, you know this right. is crazy, right? He, it's like blaming Obama for not having COVID tests. Um, what? For a virus yeah. that didn't exist. I mean, he's done this. Like, the virus didn't exist until three years after Obama left office, but yet he's to blame. Like, you know, this is insanity. It's lunacy. So I, yeah. I think that there are hopefully enough level-headed, especially, it seems, suburban women um, who understand that, like, mm, yeah, no, you know, no. Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of Americans who who might outwardly support Trump, but then actually just wear masks and maybe vote for Joe Biden and not tell anyone. I I don't know. We'll see. Um, but and you're right. When he tried to spin the herd immunity thing, he was saying we're at war. Uh, you're warriors, like kind of just trying to say a lot of us are going to die, and that's because we're tough and we're warriors. And it's just like holy shit, buddy. That is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. But you mentioned level-headed people. Uh, hmm. uh, let's talk about Dr. Fauci here because we learned over the weekend, I've got uh, a couple minutes left here with you. We learned over the weekend that the CDC changed its testing guidelines and they did this while Fauci was in the hospital under anesthesia. And it reminded me of the Ashcroft in his hospital bed and Gonzalez trying to get some, you know, American surveillance program through and Mueller and Comey like rushing in and saving the day. It, he was in the hospital. Now, why? <laughs> yeah, I think we've sort of already covered this. Maybe we can just talk about testing. But it, this administration doesn't seem like it's doing anything to to prevent COVID. It seems like they're deliberately trying to undermine the the effective testing strategies. And can you talk a little bit to that? Why? Well, I mean, I think we know the answer. But why undermine testing? Well, you know, it's the exact opposite, of course, AG, that we want to be doing here. Right. But Trump's been very, again, this is like, he just states it bluntly. He just says, Hey, you know, we we don't, we don't have, he said, he claims that we don't have a problem with too many cases. He said that basically we're doing too much testing. So the way to get rid of cases is just not to look for them. Okay. That's like saying, gosh, you know what? You know, if I don't do a pregnancy test, I'm not pregnant. I mean, you know, it's lunacy. <laughs> it's lunacy, right? Yeah, well, remember when he said he didn't want to have the ship dock in Oakland because he didn't want to hurt his numbers? Like, there weren't sick people. It's like Schrodinger's, you know, infected people. Like, they don't yeah. exist unless they set foot on soil or we yeah, test them. Yeah, no, ex- ex- exactly right. It's um, So the what we need is actually a dramatically ramped up, coordinated federal testing program. Um, that will share best practices, best tests, um, have a supply chain, um, have the borrowing power of the federal government. Many states can't borrow money. They're not allowed by their state's constitution. So how, how do they pay for this? That means they're cutting, you know, cutting jobs, essential services for, for residents in the state. I mean, this is the reality of what's actually happening. So, I, you know, we need that. We need a very clear science-driven strategy on how to test, right? Not not the, oh, Fauci's literally down and out for the count. And then all of a sudden, oh, let's not test asymptomatic people. Are you kidding me? 40 plus percent of infections are in the asymptomatic. And what's really thought is, again, these younger people get infected. That's the first wave of infections. Spreads like wildfire through these 20 to 40-year-olds. Because they're the, you know, our bartenders, baristas, Wait staff, delivery people, workers in nursing homes. Oh, whoops. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem. And that, so yeah, okay. These younger people tend to be, you know, higher chance of being no symptoms, you know, higher chance of just mildly ill. But look, we know that younger people get really, really sick from this virus. They can die and they can have long standing, lingering effects from the virus, even people that are basically asymptomatic. Yeah, that we don't even know about because we haven't had the virus around long enough to be able to study. Well, and we know that this virus affects the central nervous system, whether directly or indirectly, which is very worrisome. And when you start infecting hundreds and hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people, and the real case numbers are thought to be, of course, you know, much higher than what's reported, right? You then start seeing these, maybe it's only, you know, these rare complications, 
but you start seeing a lot of them. And in fact, with influenza, the pandemic of 1918, that there were, you know, many people, I believe it was a million people that had lingering, longstanding, like neurologic consequences, consequences, because just so many people were infected that, you know, they're fine, but, you know, as far as they didn't die, but do you have these longstanding effects that we've, like you said, we don't know. We're only, we're not even a year into this. I mean, it's we just, whew, right. Yeah. It's been a sprint. And, and it's 1917 and that, uh, that <laughs> pandemic ended World War II. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It was tremendous. Uh, oh my God. Well, that's, that sets it all better. <laughs> hey, I could have said it better. <laughs> so much fun to talk, talk to you. Thank you for so much for having me. A hundred percent. Please tell everyone where they can find you and follow you and because you're in, the information you put out is so valuable. Hey, I appreciate it, AG. So uh, in the Twitter sphere, friends, you know where to find me at Dr. Dina Grayson. Same thing with the other various social media fronts. Thou shalt not be named. But um, And I do even have a YouTube page. You can also check out my own website, dinagrayson.com. It's got kind of links to all that kind of stuff on there. And I, you know, love being on here. Big fan of yours. It's uh, mm. one of the really cool things about Twitter, quite honestly, AG, mm. um, has been meeting people like you, our mutual friend LB, um, and, <laughs> and, and, and others, you know, right all through this, all through this Twitter sphere. So, um, you know, uh, kudos to what you're doing and let's keep, uh, let's keep pushing so we can get this, uh, this guy out of there. Yeah. hundred percent. The only way to get a good testing strategy in is to turn Donald Trump into Joe Biden. And the only way to do that is to vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So thank you very much, uh, infectious disease expert, MD, PhD, Dr. Dina Grayson. I appreciate you talking to us today. Hey, thanks again, AG. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back after this break with the Good News Block. Stay with us. Hey, everybody. We'd like to thank our amazing sponsor, Allform, for sponsoring this portion of Daily Beans. Allform makes beautiful, customizable furniture for every room in your home. They craft gorgeous, high-quality sofas and chairs and love seats to your specifications, and they deliver directly to you with fast-free shipping. You customize your own sofa using premium materials and at a fraction of the cost of traditional stores. With Allform, you can pick your fabric, which is spill, stain, and scratch-resistant, great for pod pets. You pick the color of the fabric, the color of the legs, the finish, the sofa size, and the shape to make sure it's perfect for you and your home and your family. I picked out a three-seater sofa, and I got to customize it with whiskey-colored leather. I would never get to have leather with the, with the podcats, but I can now because it's scratch-resistant. I got a walnut-leg finish and a chaise lounge. It came in a couple days. I put it together myself. No tools needed, and I'm crazy about it. It's roomy and modern-looking, and I love that it's designed to my specifications. It's custom. Normally, if you want to order a custom sofa, it takes weeks or months to arrive, and you need someone to come assemble it for you, but Allform takes just three to seven days in the mail. It just takes a few minutes to put together. Allform has gorgeous armchairs, love seats, all the way up to an eight-seat sectional, so there's something for everyone. And you can always start small and buy more seats later on if you want your Allform sofa to grow and change with you when you move. And best of all, you get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they'll pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They also have a forever warranty, literally forever. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash dailybeans. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It is time for the good news. Well, we'll float on good news is on the way. All right, today we have some good news submissions from our patrons and from listeners as well. And if you want to send in your good news stories or quarantine confessions or corrections, whatever you need to send in, you just go to dailybeanspod.com and drop them into the contact area. You'll see a little drop-down menu and it tells you, you know, what you need to do. And it's all pretty simple and... Uh, that's how that's how you that's how you get that done, and we do we definitely appreciate the good news stories, and so um, keep sending them in. And our first one is from anonymous, and pronoun she her. I am a twenty year plus Fed. Oh, and since I'm further limited under the Hatch Act, and my job means a lot to me, I've mainly just tried to keep my head down and endure. But AG's story kicked me in the butt to do whatever I can with those bounds to improve our situation. On that note, I recently found out my own sister has never voted in our very swingy state. How did I not know this? <laughs> my good news, I helped her get registered, and that's one more Biden voter. AG, you have also empowered me as a Gen Xer to lift up and mentor the voices of the next generation of women. Thank you, and and though it grieves me that you were driven out of public service, I'm inspired by all you've accomplished. Thank you so much, Anonymous Sheher. And I understand you're further limited under the Hatch Act means I know 
what schedule you're in, and I understand. Um, some federal employees have more restrictions than others. I won't go into the weeds here. But yeah, I, I really appreciate that a lot. It's been it's been tough. Um, I I did push the boundaries, but I never broke the law, um, never violated the Hatch Act, um, never ran afoul of any ethics considerations. And I'm, I'm sad, too, that I was driven out. Um, I dedicated my life to it. That's what I, I when I took the oath of office on my birthday, January 20th, because Obama said, be of service to your country. Uh, and I took the oath of office 2009 and January 20th, same day that Obama took his oath of office. He inspired me and I got to take the oath of office on the same day as him. I got a GS5 clerking job, right? I took a massive pay cut, um, as you as you guys probably already know. And I started that, you know, that year I started my uh, doctorate in, in public health because I decided this is what I wanted to do forever. I wanted to help veterans. And I started out as GS5, helping one veteran at a time. And then I managed um, groups of, of MSAs and w was helping thousands of veterans a day. And then I was working for entire health systems and visions, and I was I was helping tens of thousands of veterans. And then I ended up being the West Region Liaison of 9.5 million and um, also recouping money for taxpayers uh, and, and going after fraud from private, private health care. Because that's where the fraud exists, so you know. Um, but yeah, it, it was it was sad to to lose that part of my life. Um, but I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to be providing this service. And I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing. And I'm ex so excited that your sister's going to vote. That's going to be incredible. Uh, next good news story from Jen. Pronoun she her. Pennsylvania has early in person voting. Each Pennsylvanian, each Pennsylvania County's Bureau of Elections is providing early in-person voting. Some start as early as September 15th, others in October. Some have multiple locations, others just one. So check with your County Bureau of Elections on the Internet to get more information. This is an opportunity to vote in person for those that are unsure of the mail. Uh, don't have time or don't have time to request return a return mail in ballot and don't want to risk like long lines on November 3rd. You will need to bring your ID to do early in-person voting. They will give you a paper ballot to fill out and return on the spot. Ooh, see, now you get paper ballots. It's in person and it's early. Pennsylvania, each Pennsylvania County's Bureau of Elections is providing early in-person voting. So Pennsylvania, we can do it. We can go for Biden. Thank you for that, Jen. Next up from Jay, pronouns they, them. Last year, I realized I am non-binary as regards to gender, though I'm reluctantly acknowledging that I have a male morphology. About two months ago, I submitted the paperwork to have my name legally changed. That is so great. I found out today that the judge signed the order. Woot! Now comes the fun part of changing my name in all the places it is, being sure to do it in the right order. First is the driver's license. That is so incredible. That is That has to be just such a, a big marker of of that um of that transition that's just so wonderful jay congratulations i'm so 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 happy for you keep us posted on how how everything's going with the name change because i i'm I, I would love to follow that um next up from aria she her on most days are the pronouns i am a danish patron a longtime listener here's the good news i was an exchange student in high school the tender age of 15 or 15 and 16 I lived with a family in East Texas for a year. East Texas. Ooh, interesting. I made a lot of good friends, including my quote-unquote sisters, whom I still talk to all the time and see every few years. I am also Facebook friends with a lot of the people I went to school with back then and thus see a lot of different things in my feed. Recently, some pretty awful Trump stuff started showing up, so I posted that I respect others' views, but I don't want to hate. I don't want hate and toxicity that Trump stands for in my feed and that I would have to unfriend people that kept posting it. So I did. This morning, 5.30 my time, I get a message in Messenger from a friend in Texas whom I had unfriended, asking me about my views on Trump. We talked for about an hour. I let her know some of the things uh, real media reports on Trump. She was stuck in Fox, OAN, etc. bubble. I told her how our system works, social democrat, multiple parties, free health care, college, etc. And I am happy to report that Trump has lost a vote in Texas. My friend will be voting for Biden, and I will work to get a better candidate for the Republican Party in the next election. No, she will work to get a better candidate for the Republican Party for the next election. Love you all. Keep my faith in America and these trying times. Ah, that is so wonderful. Aria, that is so, so, so great. Thank you for taking the time, for taking that hour to have that discussion. 
Um, obviously, there are some Trump supporters that are beyond discussion, as we know. But there are some out there, like our friend, friend of the podcast, who's been on the show, David Weissman, who was a hardcore Trump supporter and a Trump voter, and was saying some things on social media and and got into a conversation uh, with Sarah Silverman. And Sarah Silverman just took took some time to talk and be kind. And now he is has 150,000 followers. He's an influencer. And he's just an outstanding human being. Was a Warren Democrat. Now he's voting for Biden. So, yeah, I think you can tell, though, in the first 30 seconds whether it's going to be a productive conversation. So I'm really glad that you did that, Aria. Thank you so much, and thanks for that work. Next up from Sarah, pronoun she, her. Hey, Beanie Babies, I have a story of success to share with you. I've had a coworker for the last six plus years. Let's call her Beth. She has had the pleasure of sitting between myself, a progressive political junkie, and our moderate right, but never Trumper colleague Rick, at least until COVID sent us all to work from home earlier this year. Beth was politically agnostic, (laughs) that's a funny term, and didn't follow the news, so in the beginning would ignore the discussions Rick and I would have. Still, every time any kind of election rolled around, I would remind her of the cutoff to register to vote, even if she dismissed me. In 2016, I begged her to register to vote. She told me if Chris Evans could not get her to register, I had no chance. But over the last three and a half years, she has gone from ignoring Rick and me to tentatively asking for clarification on things she didn't understand to actively bringing up topics for conversation. Before the 2018 election, her dismissal about registering became a maybe until she talked to her family about it and they told her she should leave it to smarter people. Yeah, I have never met her family, but if I do, I will kick them all in the shins for shit like this that they tell her. But that's another story. Wow. I kept encouraging her to participate in democracy. And Beanie's, as of today, Texas has a new registered voter, another Texas voter for Biden. And what Captain, I did what Captain America could not. She is so excited to vote for Biden. And now I start working on getting her to vote down ballot, too. But I'm taking this as a victory. Uh, taking this as a victory that it is one more voter toward the numbers too large to manipulate thanks for keeping me informed one more voter that reminds me of um, a story from when I was um, trigger warning here back in 1995 I was a survivor of military sexual trauma and in uh, I started I was diagnosed with PTSD in 2006, having major panic attacks and anxiety, generalized anxiety, and uh, was going to the VA. And sometime I'd start applying for compensation um, for my disability. If you're a disabled veteran, uh, the VA gives you compensation because you had a contract. They trained you to do a job. You're disabled now and you can't do the job they trained you for. They've breached the contract, so they're going to give you uh, compensation for your disability. And I had applied and I had been denied like three times because I didn't report uh, my my rape. And so that was very re-traumatizing, right, if you will. And I, you know, I get to, I then I want to work for the VA and help other veterans. And after I was working for the VA for about three years, been denied my claim several times uh, in 2012, I was in a, a film, uh, an Oscar-nominated documentary called The Invisible War about military sexual trauma. And... The director of women's benefits um, for Veterans Affairs in Washington, D.C., her name was retired Brigadier General Allison Hickey, and I'll never forget her. She called me randomly one day and asked how I was doing and, and said she had seen the film. Apparently, she was calling all of the all of the men and women that she'd seen in the film. And I said, well, I'm not doing well. They, I, they keep denying my claim. They said that, they, that the rape didn't happen because I didn't report it and... And um, she says, my God, that's awful. And within two weeks, I had my compensation exam and was awarded my compensation shortly thereafter. So she really helped me out. And she retired uh, right before I was removed from my position at the Department of Veterans Affairs. And she sent out an email and reminded us about why she calls us her starfish. And she has this story. Uh, and she tells this this little allegory where she says, you know, there was a boy walking along the shore and washed up on the shore are millions of dead starfish. And just as far as the eye can see, miles down the beach. And this little boy is just picking them up one by one, tossing them. Now they're, I'm sorry, they're not dead. They're, they're beached. And he's picking them up one by one and throwing them back in the ocean, which 
they then they can live. And he's just one at a time, just throwing them back in. And so I guess an old man comes up and says, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm throwing these starfish back in the ocean. If I leave them out here, they'll die. And the old man goes, look. And he like gestures to the starfish all the way down the beach. He's like, look at all these starfish. You can't possibly save all of these starfish. And the little boy picked up one and threw it in the water. And he said, no, but I just saved that one. And so General Alison Hickey always referred to us as her starfish. And so when you say, you know, we have to vote in numbers too big to manipulate, that's the millions of starfish, but we, we can only do it one at a time. And so that's one more voter toward the numbers too large to manipulate. That's just what made me think of that. So thank you for sharing your story. Finally, up from anonymous pronouns, uh, she, her. And this is specific to one person, but we get this a fair bit. Uh, I know you may get this good news piece often, but I just wanted to extend a very heartfelt thank you to all of the patrons who are supporting other patron memberships at this time. It has been a challenging year for me, emotionally and financially. Um, there was an emotional and financial consuming divorce while working in healthcare. Ugh, and the kindness of a stranger has made all the difference in the world as I continue to listen to you lovely ladies daily. So just thank you, because I don't think it can be said too much. And that just echoes what I was saying earlier in the show. Thank you so much to all of our patrons who are sponsoring other patrons. You can do that at dailybeanspod.com. And if you need, uh, if you want to be sponsored, you can sign up for to be on the list there as well. And we've had hundreds of people buying sponsorships for people who people in need, people who can't afford it right now. So, and it's thirty six dollars for a year, so it's not that much. So, thank you so much to all of you, and. Thank you for sending in your good news stories. Please continue to send them in. I love hearing them and I love reading them. And everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet and take care of your mental health. I've been AG and them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com.